and welcome back, everybody, to the McLaughlin Group. <laughs> I'm your host, McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Um, joining us today are uh, David Brooks from the New York Times. Hey, hi, good to be here. And um, uh, Louise Minch. <laughs> um, I'm so fucking stupid. Who Louise Minch is? No, I am. Oh, you're but, so yeah, stupid. also Louise. Who the Minch. fuck is Louise Minch? Uh, you're 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 a Twitter neophyte. I can tell. She's like a um. I can't keep up with Twitter. I can't keep up with you. I do my best. All I got. You're doing good. I see you out there on the streets. Hey, I've got a question for you. I just was looking back through my phone. Of, um, you never told me who Louise Minch is. <laughs> oh, she's just some like conspiracy theorist. She's like the Alex Jones of li- of, the of the resistance. resistance. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That's, that's the best way for me. The to Guardian call. put out this article about how like she was taking all of her talking points from some sort of hoaxer. Person. Yeah, yeah. I saw the headline. I've not read it yet. Well, I'm pretty into conspiracy theories, so that's been all far. It's not fun conspiracy theories. It's like oh. incredibly paranoid. Uh, well, no, I, I don't even know how to put it. It's just not fun. She takes all the fun out of conspiracy theories. goddammit. it! Is that it's somehow, possible? Is that somehow, possible? yeah. If you're <laughs> taking all the fun out of conspiracy, <laughs> like Alex Jones has done this recently too. Yeah. Alex Jones is no fun anymore. Yeah. Well, he uh, went. You know, he he uh, since he went hard for Trump. Was he fun before that? You know, I guess like he was funny. Sneaking a into bit. like Bohemian I, Grove I and shit was like, uh, yeah, it was totally performative and absurd, but it was funny. Wait, he actually went to Bohemian Grove. <laughs> well, it's like me and Tom watched the video one time. It's him it's, and John Ronson, you know, the author John Ronson. Uh, it's funny, like they don't actually go in; they just like film shit from like the outside of it, and they're like, uh, oh my god, and they use like editing to like make it look like. Um, they're actually like going in there, but they don't actually go in. It's like a, it's like a porno without the money shot. It never actually comes. <laughs> yeah, it's just insinuate. It's just implied. <laughs> yeah. There are people. It's it's like the uh, Bigfoot videos. It's like there it is. There it is. Look, it's yeah. moving in the right, woods. Right, right, right. There's movement. So something sort of like that. Um, oh, Lord. So, anyways, anyways, yeah, Louise Minch. Um, so. Uh, what do we got on the uh, what do we got in the old hopper this week? What do we got in the old silo? <laughs> <laughs> the old the joke silo. The old bread we basket. A, we need a granary, <laughs> like a joke granary, where you go and you do um, the uh, got jokes. My McLaughlin group intro was the best I had this week. <laughs> actually, and I actually thought about that on the toilet this morning. I thought it'd be funny if I. But you didn't have my character lined up. No, 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 no. I just had mine. I just did that part on the fly. But I thought if we ever do a live show, that's how I would intro us. I'm really not. I was thinking about this the other night. I was sort of stoned by myself at my house, and I was just like thinking Shocker. about. Shocker. I was thinking about how like deeply unfunny I actually am. Like I know nothing about structuring jokes. Or yeah, he. I mean, he, Tom this week was like, "Man, we really could go on the road with Lee Baines." And I was like, "I cannot imagine how loud the booze would be." We, we would bomb, and it would like just we totally would bomb ruin their so thing. Hard. Like, it'd take me. So I'd be like, "Man, this is just 
Right. Not really working. This ain't gonna work. We're gonna fly your asses home. (laughs) Right. right. I feel like it would just bomb all of our entire lives because we'd never recover from a full stage, just fucking breakdown. So I was wondering this about. um, You remember I texted y'all over the weekend and said, "I put an announcement about Ray's Law." (laughs) You remember that? I do. I do now. On like a Saturday night. Oh shit! My phone died. I can't actually do this. <laughs> I was going to use it. You but don't have it well, in your hand? Uh, so I was looking on the internet. I thought maybe perhaps I may have found something that disproved Ray's law, which is that I can't find any cases of... Um... <laughs> actually, this is not really Ray's law. But I was going to say that like with the eclipse, um, I think the basic structure of Ray's law is basically that... like. Uh, if it can happen, it will. Yeah. Or it has. Or it has. Although specifically, if, that's if it can't happen, it will. I think that's Murphy's law. That's Murphy's law. Ray's law. Impeding on his <laughs> territory. Ray's law specifically has to do with uh, narcophilia or Sexual whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah, necrophilia. Um, but I was wondering if there's anything related to the eclipse. Surely, I mean, that, people contacted the state of North Carolina to inquire about conception tents. You know, <laughs> they, were they trying to take? But were they trying to take their dead mother into a conception tent? Do you think anybody's ever taken that. their dead mother into a conception tent during an eclipse? That has never happened. Well, that th- has never happened. That's probably never happened. <laughs> well, I don't know. Terry's <laughs> like, well, obviously, we're around for the eclipse of '62. <laughs> <laughs> well. When me and Tom were talking about this the other day with Alex and her sister, we were talking about, like, perhaps the most, like, um, the best-known example of this would be, like, 9-11. Like, what was the craziest shit happening in the towers on 9-11? I mean, really, it could be anything, right? And the scenario that me and Tom came up with, wasn't it something like... (laughs) A blind guy was jacking (laughs) off his service dog. Oh, my God. Oh a blind guy God. was, I think it was a blind guy was fingering a goat. <laughs> I think that's what it was. But in the towers? <laughs> I thought it was a blind guy who was jacking off his service dog. This is, now we're getting into Mandela effect. That makes more sense because why the fuck would anyone have a goat in the Twin Towers during yeah. But someone was jacking off their yeah. service dog in the Twin Towers. Dear God. And they were just sitting there like, whoa. <laughs> it's like the whole building shakes a little bit. <laughs> That he didn't know what the fuck was going on. And yes. Just... <laughs> oh shit. Oh my god. I mean, when you were when you started this, I was gonna say, oh, probably coworkers were secretly fucking in a closet somewhere and thought oh, they had gotten sure caught. Happened. Well, yeah, that happened definitely. <laughs> that was but that was as weird as I was getting in my head. That that definitely happened. It would be pretty mm-hmm. crazy though if we you were just doing went that. One hundred there, didn't we? Yeah. If you came though, right yeah. as the plane hit. Jesus. Just a few, a few floors above you. <laughs> Could have been a really intense orgasm, just like oh the shake God. of the earth. You conceived a child and named it Muhammad Atta. We need to hold <laughs> this bit you. until September, the, the week before September 11th. Yeah, can you, up. can you imagine how fucking funny September 11th is going to be this year with pre- Trump as president? Oh, the smoke, <laughs> the... the there's a video the dog and pony show. It's gonna be big. <laughs> There's a video clip big. of him from 9/11. Actually, um, I think it's on the morning show or some shit like that, or a radio show. I can't remember what it was. Where he's he says something like, 
oh, now the Trump Tower is the tallest tower in, in Manhattan. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. What if on this September 11th, <laughs> someone does something to the Trump Towers? <laughs> he really... Jesus Christ. I can't that, believe he said that. Yeah, no. It's going to be great, though. It's going to be really funny. Like, you know, Huge. like, it was really funny to see him and Melania go down to Texas, and, like, Melania's wearing, like, six-inch heels, like, for, like, a photo op for, like, yeah. fucking flooding, like, the biggest oh environmental God. catastrophe of this century, probably, it's so far. Just out fucking Dior, <laughs> ready to pull fucking people out of the water. Oh, my God. Um... Well, anyways. I'd write her closet. I couldn't fit any of it, but I'd take all her handbags. <laughs> Fuck it, you sell it. <laughs> yeah, I'd take it all to Annie's. Um, <laughs> I don't just dole this out uh, liberally, but uh, Trump is a shit for brains. It's <laughs> <laughs> a classic that? insult we need to bring back. Yeah. <laughs> He's a, he is just a shit for brains. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, though, like, we, I actually talked to someone about this after the eclipse, that when the picture leaked of him staring right at the sun, I thought, maybe there is a genius marketer, marketing intern, some fool that's hanging around like, you know, it'd be great if we could picture him just staring right at the sun, just like staring right at the sun. People will love it. People will talk about it for days. Well, that's one thing conservatives do like doing funny absurd self-owned shit just to own libs and that is that could conceivably shit that could conceivably be one of them even funnier to me is if trump was actually partially blind now but he was just playing it off like (laughs) he's not gonna gonna admit it someone uh, some for some reason somebody uh resurfaced that picture from the oval office with kellyanne it was like when all these president all these hbcu presidents <laughs> yes were in the west wing the and she's sitting on the couch with her like feet in the couch yeah, it's just like her she's knees she looks like an amputee and I, it is just it, it it's hard to believe that's a real picture the, right? the funny thing is that somebody whatever <laughs> happened to her did she get back oh uh, yeah did she I yeah, think she's I'm still there. Really? The funniest I Photoshop know. I saw of that photo was somebody had just very slyly put a Pornhub logo in the bottom right corner of that photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, Lord. Pornhub always has the best April Fool's Day situation. Have y'all been to Pornhub on April Fool's Day? I, I remember when they did Cornhub. Cornhub was so yeah. good. You know, I haven't really been watching porn lately at all i haven't watched porn in a really long time now that i think about it. it's been months <sighs> tell it to somebody who believes you <laughs> I, no, I haven't either i, 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 I could tell you last time i looked at porn no i mean like i've gone I've through, just been re-watching the l word i go through phases <laughs> where, is that porn <laughs> sometimes <laughs> occasionally is there pee in <laughs> what is the l word is that the porn you're watching people peeing on each other um you're so fucking vile. No, no, no. I don't watch. You all I make told me you. out to be the freak hey, don't shame I just told that, you I haven't watched porn in a long time. <laughs> I literally haven't. You know, the L word is nostalgic porn because I watched it through the lines on Showtime as a child. You know? What is the L word? Wait, what? This you is know, even more layered. Listen, so. So you're, you're jacking off, like you're masturbating to. Pre-internet. Nostalgia. Teenage. <laughs> softcore. Nostalgic softcore porn. No, Prestige I mean, I'm not jacking It doesn't show penetration it. in that show, right? Uh, You're not getting. It's pen- insinuated, isn't it? Not it's exactly. softcore. You've been watching softcore porn? 
That's just, well, they do all those gyrations, and it's I'm just, just like... That's what I'm watching on Netflix. I'm, like, going back and forth between that and this other crazy Netflix original. And so, it's the closest thing I'm watching to porn right now, because I haven't You're jacking off like I'm a 12-year-old boy. I'm not jacking off. That's what I'm telling you. This <laughs> like is how I got like off, jack off in like high wrestling. school. I was watching, like, softcore porn through the lines on Showtime at my dad's house. To China? Is that what you're talking about? To oh, jack you're jacking off to, off to China? Oh, God. She had massive boobs. She had huge, she had huge She had tits. massive arms and thighs. Hey, you fucking judge her. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to guess, I'd say she had a massive clip. I was always into she did. That was proven. Remember? Oh, yeah. Not in China. <laughs> oh, God. I buried that. Her next X-Pac, X-Pac rocking a fucking four-inch. You're just trying to go to town on that woman. And... Oh, my God. Oh, my dear sweet. Jesus. The one, two, uh, it's funny because he, he used to have a, his first wrestling name was the one two three kid. Oh hell yeah! And dear God, and I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> Just spiraled out quickly. Yeah, do you want to put this at the beginning of this episode or at the end? We'll do some creative editing. This could be kind of. If funny. If we're gonna if put I... it at the beginning, uh, hello everybody, welcome, uh, support our Patreon. We our guest is Michelle Miller. Yeah, but if we're if we're gonna put it at the end, we're definitely the McLaughlin group. <laughs> the beginning sounds right. Okay, all right. Well, then uh, let's remind everybody to go to our Patreon, support us. Yeah. Patreon dot com slash Trillbelly Workers Party. That's T R I L L B I L L Y W O R K E R S. What did y'all backslash? What did y'all think about the last Patreon episode we put up? I wasn't with y'all. Did y'all listen to it? I haven't been able to listen to it yet. Because you're not a Patreon supporter? <laughs> I'm not a, I don't give I'm not a Patreon supporter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm locked out of my own goddamn work Yeah, that art. happens to me too. I can't even figure out how to listen to it. There are literally episodes on Patreon I have not heard. Yes, so uh, r- listeners, um, I'm sure there's episodes that you haven't heard either. Um uh, we're in this together. We're in this with you. Yeah, get we'll it. all be hearing it for the first time. So go and uh, become a Patreon for us. Patron. Um, so, anyways, uh, yeah, our guest this week is Michelle Miller. She works for Coworker. Uh, she's founder of Coworker dot org. Yeah. And uh, we talked to her about some fun labor stuff. And uh, she's the boss bitch. I wonder what would happen if her employees started using coworker.org to organize against her as the boss. Wouldn't that be meta? Whoa. Think about it. (laughs) Oh, shit. All right, well, there's only one way to find out. Stay tuned. Uh, The funniest part is that the five will get stuck sometimes. And to style a bunch of five. (laughs) Style a bunch of five. Five, five, five. Five, five, five. Five, five. Hello. Hi. Hi. Yeah, you can hear us, Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Hey, how's it going? I can hear you. Yay. Good. Good news. Yeah, good to good to have you join us today. Thanks. I'm glad to be uh, here. To be here by phone. Yeah. <laughs> How was your Tuesday? Um, it was Pretty run-of-the-mill, uh, running a nonprofit Tuesday. Wrote some budget, Ooh. did some calls. You know, standard stuff. Sounds sexy. G- gave the appearance yeah. of doing work, <laughs> or is yeah. that just me? <laughs> I uh, I had a pretty uh, interesting Tuesday. 
Um, I had to go, I was telling Tom earlier, I had to go to the doctor and get a steroid shot in my ass. Oh my oh. God. Yeah. And now you're sharing it with the whole now world. Now I'm sharing it with the whole world. <laughs> Tom was like, why did you do that? And I was like, I'm trying to get swole. <laughs> I, went to, I went to my doctor, I was like, I'm trying to get jacked, bro. That's that's covered under your uh, plan. <laughs> yeah, it's covered under my anthem plan. <laughs> no, I'm trying to get a big fat ass. <laughs> it sucks not having an ass because um, you really it really does sit on make, your spine all the time. Yeah, man. yeah, it hurts yeah. like shit. It hurts, but no, really, it was for asthma. Um, you know, I have all these physical problems wrong with me. I try to pretend like I'm uh, weed smoking, bourbon drinking, reprobate, but. <laughs> And <laughs> I can't even eat goddamn tomatoes. In reality, I can't even eat tomatoes. <laughs> Boy can't process lettuce. <laughs> oh, Lord. The flat bottom boys flat, in here. The flat bottom boys. <laughs> oh, thank oh, you so shit. much for agreeing to yeah. talk with us. Yes. Michelle. We got things off to a good start by talking about my ass. So. I mean, I usually talk about your ass, man, so good. <laughs> I can do it with you. <laughs> That's our favorite. It's, good, it's a good icebreaker. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, Lord. So, Michelle, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so, I am a native West Virginian. Woo-woo. Uh, woo-hoo. Living wow. in Brooklyn right now. Um, and I spend most of my time um, running this kind of nutso labor organization called coworker.org. Um, and I, um, you know, we're kind of doing this thing where we're organizing in the wild um, and helping out like anybody that comes to our digital door and figuring out what the future of the labor movement is. Um, yeah. And I am a huge fan of this podcast. Uh, so I'm really excited to be on today. Um, <laughs> Oh, and just on. met you, Tanya, like a couple of weeks ago when I was down at Apple Shop taking a walk around with some friends that I wanted to show show off Whiteford to. So yeah, you outed me. What... You outed my smutty podcast in front of my coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. I tried my travel companions. I tried to get them to listen to the Elizabeth Cat episode before we could go into Whitesburg, but they didn't do their homework. So I was kind of mad. I can relate to that. I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> I'm staring right at Tanya as I say that. <laughs> I rarely do my Trillbillies homework. <laughs> uh, um, I did, however, look up a little bit about Coworker before this. We, I've been excited to talk with you, um, mostly to hear about. Um, your West Virginia roots. You said that. I think it's cool. You said you all organize in the wild. So I wonder <laughs> how your wild and wonderful roots have prepared you for that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I grew up in Northern West Virginia um, in Fairmont, which is a town uh, about 20 minutes South of Morgantown where the big university is, but it was mostly coal fields and coal town. Um, and every man in my family, except my father, worked in the mines. Um, and uh, so I kind of grew up. Uh, my dad just, like, didn't work very much, so that's why he didn't work in the mines. Um, so I kind of grew up, really, um, with the, this idea of the union um, as almost like a third pillar of authority and like, your life. Like, there's, like, the government, there's the, the company, and then there's the union. Um, and like, you know, watching Rich Trumka hang out in uh, parking lots at, 
uh, mines on the local news because he was like the president of the mine workers local near my near my house. So, um, and my grandma actually grew up like she was one of the first black lung check recipients. Uh, she had to fight really hard to get the money after my grandfather died. And so, like, I just was sort of immersed in this story of um, labor versus capital Mm -hmm. um, and uh, very keenly aware of, like, what side we were on um, and, like, throughout my childhood. And so I, of course, though, was, like, a poor, smart kid and was encouraged to leave immediately um, because nobody thought that I, you know, I was going to be able to have a job. Um, So I moved to D.C. and I went to this fancy university with all of these rich kids. Um, and I quickly sort of was able to see the differences between what it was to be me growing up and who they were. And I remember that you get, you know, you sort of like, even though you don't quite believe it because you have pride, um, you are so indoctrinated with this idea that like these people are somehow supposed to be more sophisticated than you in a number of different ways. And then you meet them and, they say really ridiculous things about whether or not you have shoes and, and where it's don't know where West Virginia is. Um, and it really like crystallized for me the ways in which like class had all these layers. Cause I had these sort of class-based experiences when I was in West Virginia um, as like a poor kid among kids that had more money. And then you go out of West Virginia and then like, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> whether or not you what you had and how much you had because you were still just sort of a a hillbilly to a bunch of kids from New Jersey and Long Island Um, and in that in that sort of time period also kind of fell upon Apple shop um, and um, discovered this like body of documentary film that made me feel like I was connected to my home um, while I was among all these like goofball rich kids Um, and sort of also had this idea in my head that I wanted to tell my story and working people's stories. Um, And so I, you know, I like developed this. I'm sorry, guys, can I pause for a second? Yeah, for sure. Sure. I'm, I'm getting like um, a thousand text messages and that probably means something bad's happening. Okay. Are you you on a group Um, message chat with like 30 of your friends? You sure it's not all memes? (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. Um, anyway, yeah. Well, your story, uh, I was going to say, I think I've read about it before in a book called Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the yeah, only time we're going to It's exactly gonna... like that book. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's exactly <laughs> like that. Anyways, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead, Michelle. Uh, yeah, no, no problem. So, yeah, so a- anyway, um, I was getting a little long-winded. Um, but I, I sort of had this experience of, like, of growing up in a place where um, – these sort of stories of class and sense of class um, were just part of the, the daily lived experience um, and was transported into a place where people had a lot more and class like slowly became invisible as a dividing line if you were on the other side of the line. Um, and at the same time, like really sort of started uh, watching all these I was a documentary film major. I was watching all of these like films and stories about people. And I became really obsessed with this idea of like people who could tell their own stories and assert their own way in the world Um, and ended up in the labor movement. I think mostly because I like one wanted stories of working people and it seemed like a great place to go to find them. 
And two, I thought that maybe if I got a job in the labor movement, I would be around more people like the people that I grew up with, um, even though I couldn't quite go home because I was really indoctrinated. My generation, I'm in my late 30s, and my generation, I think, of like Appalachian kids is really indoctrinated with this um, sense of like, you have to leave. You can't come back. There's nothing for you here. There's something else somewhere out there. And I, I really... Um, I'm like so excited when I see other young folks who got to stay home because um, it makes me feel like maybe I could go home someday. Um, yeah. But so from there, I actually I like went almost immediately from college into working at um, a trade union where I made documentaries and videos and stories about workers for like 10 years and basically spent all of my time functioning almost as like an artist in residence in the union and thinking about how people's stories connected them directly to like the, the more bread and butter fights that people were having inside their own workplaces and how, um, you know, the union, especially like sort of like more businessy unions or, or big money unions like to communicate who they are to the public through wins or through fights or through slick press releases. And what we constantly found was that when you gave people room to talk about the difference that the, that actually like, having some agency in their workplace made in their lives, that was the place where people actually connected to what the labor movement could be and had a sense of ownership over, um, over labor and over uh, their own labor and their own ability to build a movement, um, which is really what made us, when we left my co-founder uh, that I created co-worker with and I, when we left the, the union, really were sort of motivated by that idea that people could like, both define themselves inside their workplaces through the stories that they told, but also define what a labor movement was um, by being able to create their own uh, narratives about what work meant to them and what their vision was for the future. So, yeah, Michelle, could you tell us, like, uh, maybe give us an elevator speech on Coworker, but um, just maybe even go a little bit deeper than that and tell us why it's uh, necessary. You know, why, why like, the sort of... Um, history of labor organizing necessitates it. Does that makes any yeah. sense? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm obsessed with that question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like... <laughs> Lucky, <yeah. laughs> um, I'm like, do I start in 1935 or do I go earlier? Um, you found so, the right I audience. Mean, what's that? You found the right audience. Terrence. <laughs> I mean, we're... So, like... So, yeah. So first I'll say what coworker.org is, and then I'll sort of talk about, like, why it is what it is. So we're basically, um, we are a place where right now we're just a digital platform uh, staffed by three people um, where the idea is that anybody anywhere can go to our website and start a campaign about something that they care about in their workplace. Um, and when you start that campaign, we help share it around um, through social media and through the press and through other outlets to help you build what we call like a network of your coworkers. So for what that means um, in sort of the material world is uh, we have 40,000 Starbucks baristas who have joined campaigns over the past four years. There are about 50 different campaigns by Starbucks baristas and they work on all of these problems that are happening inside Starbucks. So They've won the. They've won dress code changes. They've won wage increases. They've won improvements to their scheduling. 
Um, they learn how to able... spell people's What's names. That? They learn how to spell people's names correctly. <laughs> they um, they have not prioritizing that right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah. So um, so yeah. So they like they so they do that. Um, we were the place where the Wells Fargo bank tellers came together like four years ago to start talking about the fact that they had all these crazy sales goals that were actually the practices that led to like the consumer fraud that was uncovered last summer that got the CF the CEO fired. Um, that was started by just a couple bank what, tellers. Was that like, was that the video of Liz before and really going in on that one dude? Yeah, okay. yeah, that was okay. a real yeah, good day. Yeah, <laughs> real good day. <laughs> <laughs> Giving it to her. Yeah, yeah. They they sort of gave her ammo. Um, so yeah, so like it's basically so the idea is basically that like any worker can start a campaign, and by starting that campaign and like telling a story about something that they want to change, they attract other workers. And then those workers all kind of work together as a network to keep like pushing for changes inside their company. And that is all done in this decentralized way through the internet. So like, because there are like six Starbucks baristas who work in um, franchise X, they can't really talk to the six Starbucks baristas who work in franchise Y because they like don't ever see each other. So you have to figure out a way for people to actually come together. And this sort of goes to like some of the mo- the problems in the current trade union model and in the National Labor Relations Act um, and all of the existing infrastructure for people to organize because it's all predicated on this idea that you have some central place where you can go and you'll see everybody and you could engage in organizing from there. But that doesn't actually like, that's not the reality for most workers right. in this country. So. We like we had seen a bunch of workers before we started coworker like kind of trying to do this on their own. They would like use pop popular technology like Facebook group or change.org petition or they'd like write letters to Hamilton Dolan at Gawker. Um and like they would sort of amass some kind of like swarm of people who were like into the thing. Um and they would sometimes win something, but there was no infrastructure that actually like kept people together. So it'd be really ephemeral. It'd be like eight weeks. Everybody was really into something and then it'd disappear because it's the internet. So our Mm -hmm. idea was like, if we can like center that activity in a place and we can keep people connected over time, could those swarms that care about one thing actually start to become like, like institutional infrastructure that consistently has like some memory and is consistently pushing for more and more and more. And does that start to become like what the new model of a of a union is? Yeah. Um, have yeah. You, have so you that's f- the idea. Have you found that to be the case so far? I mean, I guess it's pretty new. I mean, you you guys have only been doing this for not that long, but um, but yeah, where do you see it? Like, where do you see it working towards? I think it's like so. Um, I think that we're just figuring out. Like, so we've been around four years. Um, like, we have these networks. Uh, what we're seeing is like, so it's interesting because on one hand, the internet makes you go really fast in terms of amassing a lot of people. So like I like we have these huge networks and, and these companies, um, but you still are operating at like the human scale of transformation and like building solidarity and building some sense of like what power means. So 
what where we where we've seen it go the farthest so far is like there are a bunch of REI workers. REI is like that, that outdoors retailer. Yeah. Um, it's like they won wage increases and scheduling reform last year, and like they still work together as a network, and they're working on a new campaign right now. But they also like got together and issued an alt alt uh, annual report like of their own where they like surveyed each other and they had all this wow. data in the annual report and they delivered it like when they had the annual meeting. So there was Damn. like the REI official yeah. report and then the one the workers made. Oh, that's pretty cool. That is yeah. Badass. And they just like, that's what people do. They just like come up with cool shit that they can do. That's like, that's like, and I feel like those are like the signals of people like starting to see themselves as something more than a couple of individuals that are trying to get something done. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, have any of the any of the uh, companies uh, got wise to your devices and sent you nasty letters or <laughs> made idle Twitter threats? We've had, uh, for the most part, uh, it's been pretty okay. It's an interesting thing is like the big companies like are not worried about it. Right. They, we see them like kind of copycat us sometimes. We'll like try to like have their own Facebook group. Um, and that's fine. Cause like they can't do what we can do. Um, but the, it's, it seems like sometimes like the, we've had like the smaller companies, which I cannot name, um, on this widely broadcast radio show. Oh yeah. Uh, Tens of thousands of like, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's just our moms. someday I will tell you in person cause it's, the company's like really funny. <laughs> uh, but they, they, a couple of times we've had, like, we get letters that are like, I just want to let you know that there is, uh, there are lies all over your website. Um, and you probably are going to be up for a defamation lawsuit. And you know, it's like really clumsily written and totally, it's always written as though like we're just like we're just like helping you out and letting you know someone lied on your website. Uh, that's usually the tone of it, and we ignore it, and it's fine. Or we like send some form letter, and it's fine. But no, they haven't really. Nobody's really like fucked with us too much um, yet. Although I know it's coming, like I, any day now. Yeah, well, so. I mean, anytime you're raising uh, class or worker consciousness, there will be a point at which the boss puts his foot down. So yeah, a threat. Um, yeah. So yeah, back to my earlier question. I, I didn't mean to take us off topic there, but yeah, uh, we were saying like what about the sort of history of the labor movement uh, necessitates this, and or you know, why do you why do you think it's necessary? Yeah, I mean, I think that I I really find well, one, I, I find the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, which is the thing that defines what a trade union is for most people. Um, to be really inherently flawed for a, a number of reasons. Um, so the and just to like give a little bit of background. So the the Wagner Act, that, which was passed in 1935, um, sort of defined trade unions as um, these these entity. It was a compromise deal to begin with that Francis Perkins, who was the labor secretary at the time, didn't even think was like that great of a deal. And when she took it to the heads of the unions. She thought that they would want to like push back a little bit, but they were so eager to have a seat at the table that they were like, okay. So from yeah. the get-go, it was not like a great deal. And it basically really defines a trade union as like uh, very much aligned with the industrial factory model of um, one group 
of a very centralized, very stationary group of people negotiating with management to, to sort of cover a mass amount of people under a contract uh, that has to be renegotiated every couple of years. And one of the big flaws in it is that it only applies to employees, W-2 employees, um, and it um, it really only benefit. It was designed specifically, really only to benefit like white men in factories. There were all of these exclusions written into the act, uh, like domestic workers were excluded from the act. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine why you would exclude domestic workers who are mostly women of color. <laughs> like it was just so written as. Um, an inherently exclusionary piece of legislation to ensure that economic benefits only went to very specific workers in the economy that um, I, I protest against it because it's sort of uh, uh, morally and ethically not okay, but also because what it did was it defined what labor could be so narrowly that then business was able to expand into the holes that were all around that. When you look at the fact that, like, there is this huge rise in the use of temporary and 1099 employees. Like part of the business case for that is that they can't form a union. Um, And so like it, by, by being sort of racist and exclusionary at the outset, what the act ultimately did was created a pretty sturdy mechanism for tearing apart any power that labor could build over the, the, the past century. This is not like, not everybody thinks this, but this is just like the stuff that I think. So, yeah. So, and like managers can't join unions. Um, And what's interesting about this is that like the structure of employment um, was, was kind of anomalous in the late twenties and early thirties. Like that industrialization moment when like everybody was working in factories wasn't particularly representative of the way people had worked up until then or the way people are working now. And so we have this like act that's based on an an historical anomaly um, around the way that people were getting work as defined by the conveniences of these mega employers and these big manufacturing factories that like don't reflect the current reality. Um, So we have to find ways for people to form some kind of collective outside of what is defined by the NLRA because it is not suitable. So that's why we are designed the way we are, which is like anybody. Managers can start campaigns. Independent contractors can start campaigns. Like we are here to build power for workers and we don't make distinctions about who deserves to have power in their workplace and who deserves the ability to form a collective around something they care about. Do you, you mention domestic workers? Do you all have y'all worked much with the Domestic Workers Alliance? We yeah, we're um, we're organizational friends, um, and we actually talk a lot to them about the work that they're doing. They have this thing called a Fair Care the Fair Care Labs, um, which is where they're trying to figure out how to use technology to connect domestic workers and to organize domestic workers. And we've done, I've been doing a lot of stuff around like the on-demand economy and figuring out how to organize in that sector. And so we've, um, we've worked with them on sort of hashing out some ideas for, for helping workers there. Um, you had mentioned, you know, growing up in West Virginia and seeing your, um, all the men in your family, most of the men in your family be union workers and your mm-hmm. grandma in particular being, you said, one of the first women to get um, black lung benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, I'm curious to know, 
how you're seeing things play out in the organizing you're doing um, around female leadership and if women are really leading a lot of these campaigns, specifically, um, you know, especially in the mountains, labor, let alone organizing, just labor in general, all work is really, con- it's the, the national narrative of work in the region is very masculine, like only mm-hmm. men work here. <laughs> um, and the role of women in organizing around here has really been pretty um, invisible um, or has people have worked to make it invisible but um, so I'm just curious as what you all have been seeing play out in this kind of new wave of organizing and what type of um, leadership what the leadership looks like yeah that, I love that question yeah we're like 60% women because um, we did a demographic overview last year and I, I would say like most of our can not all um, but most of our campaigns are led by women. Um, and uh, most of the, I've also noticed that most of the, the, the online conversations, like a lot of our stuff is generated through um, Facebook conversations just between workers and that a lot of the back and forth and a lot of the sort of um, uh, planning and, and idea generation is actually happening among women who are talking to one another on Facebook. Um, so, I mean, and I think it's interesting, like, so one, we're heavily women-centered um, and we're also way more heavily um, rooted in the South um, and in rural areas. And I think that that speaks so much to, like, what sort of what you were just pointing out is that, like, most of the, the traditional infrastructure, uh, the minimal amount of it that exists around um, and specifically in the South, uh, is, is really male-dominated and really male-connected. And so, like, we end up being the place where um, when everybody else ignores you, you can come um, test something out. Uh, we, had a, we had a worker, and one of our really, really powerful leaders is a woman in Asheville, North Carolina, who has been doing this really great organizing of restaurant and low-wage workers um, across the city, and she had initially gone to like a labor organization um, to try and solve her problems. And they were just like, they just ignored her. Like nobody wanted to talk to her. Um, and so uh, what we're seeing is like that, you know, a lot of the campaigns that end up on the site are kind of like solutionsy. They're like, they're like, I've identified a problem and I have a solution for it mm-hmm. instead of just being, you know, purely protest oriented. Um, and I think that so much of that has to do with, like, the, the hard problem-solving work that a lot of these women have had to do with their coworkers um, in advance of actually, like, starting the campaign. So, yeah, it's, like, like really heavily women-oriented. We've been doing a lot of tech worker organizing lately, too. Um, and while most of the on-the-site campaigns have been run by men, like, most of the actual work of organizing and meeting and discussing things has been really heavily women-led that makes sense yeah it does um (laughs) so so like i guess i i have some questions just about like the sort of bigger picture um Mm -hmm. because i you know and you don't have to like wear your coworker hat for this uh if you don't want to um because, you know, I certainly don't feel like what I do on a day-to-day basis actually, you know, I, I certainly don't feel like the the work that I do with the organization I do, it provides services for uh-huh. the system. It's like sort of harm reduction. Do you feel like, um, 
do you what do you think about like the sort of state of the labor movement at the moment is it challenging capitalism or are we just sort of or, or are we just sort of in this holding pattern or <laughs> or or you know maybe a side question to that is like do you feel like a coworker or what you do or what you've seen other people do is that challenging the sort of uh, larger system around us and like i said you don't even have to answer that question i just wanted to sort of make a big picture <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I think it's funny that you asked that, though, because I was having this conversation with my co-founder today about why um, why we all fight all the time inside the labor movement, because um, uh, we do, because we're all, like, I feel, like, persistently all in disagreement, and she was like, yeah, because it's, like, the tension is that when you are running a labor organization within a capitalist context, like, there is some element to which you are always the more successful you are, the more you are continuing to uphold the capitalist system um, because you are creating remedy in the context. Like you're still operating within the context, um, like the agreed upon parameters of how it operates. Um, so I guess that would be her answer. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like we're all. Well, first of all, we're all in like a state of emergency because like, I don't know. I, and I'm not, I'm definitely not seeing as a coworker here. I'm seeing for the labor movement, but like we, I, I'm pretty sure that like the trade unions are going to get knocked out next year completely when the, there's a Supreme court ruling that's going to come down. That's going to basically make it so that public sector union members don't have to pay dues, which is going to basically decimate mm -hmm. further. Um, the trade unions and like I think that the rest of the labor movement is so under resourced that we're trying, um, but we're not really. I don't think that we are confronting capital directly. Um, I'm really actually kind of excited for all of the people that have come up like through radical politics in the past year who are interested in these questions and maybe have like some willingness to push most of what we're doing i mean most of us are also like foundation funded and so like you know can only push so hard right <laughs> so, yeah. yeah i don't know if that's a very good answer but it's i think we're in a tough spot right now yeah well and the reason i ask is because like you know um the first thing that you know you saw after the elections last year it seemed like um across the board um was a sort of uh, nationwide sort of um, assault on worker protections, you know, and we have like mm -hmm. all these right to work laws and all this stuff. I mean, it's a huge priority of theirs. Um, they're trying to decimate uh, labor power at all costs. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like, you know, you pointed out these problems to the um, to the Wagner Act and all uh, these previous sort of uh, labor reforms. Like, how do we get back to a place uh you know like what do we need to do to sort of like move the needle back to a place where we're actually um making demands and um making the economy sort of uh bend the knee <laughs> i hate to use that term you know what i'm saying like back to our our, our needs and, and stuff like that yeah i mean i think it's organizing um like really organizing uh and what we need is a movement of people who actually understand that that's that is in some way possible and they need to have a material experience with that like in their own lives to start making those demands um i think and and that's really like 
that's why we are doing what we're doing, which is this like literally anyone organizing in the wild, showing up where someone has a spark of an idea and helping them make some sort of movement toward that idea. And the reason that we have to do that, I think, like to get to like what you just laid out is because people need to have an actual experience of, of uh, like leveraging their own power and using their own organizing muscles and confronting power directly in their own lives. And the way that you do that is in your own workplace because it's kind of the closest relationship you have to economic power is the one with your boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really think that that like ends up, I mean, it's a 20 year project. I kind of feel like we've, we've lost everything. So we've got all the time in the world. Like it's urgent, but it's, it's also like we keep fucking up. Yeah. So we might as well, uh, just help some people organize along the way. Uh, but like the, the most of the labor movement right now is like still, I mean, SEIU just like said, they're going to spend like another hundred million dollars on the 2018 elections. Like they're still going really like, let's make sure we elect a bunch of Democrats. And I feel like that can, that persistent insistence, I understand why that's important, but it's like there's so much resources that go into, into political and electoral. And like people I know because they, they come to us, people are really hungry to be able to organize and to know what to do in their own workplaces. But it's, you know, it's hard. Yeah. Especially with unemployment so high in so many places. I mean, yeah. We know around here that was a big a big ripple impact of um, the union breaking. Well, and it presents a really hard um, sort of philosophical question, which is that, like, uh, I think the sort of, um, I don't know what the word would be, sort of, like, accepted truth in sort of the socialist left for over 100 years now is that the working class is the sort of... um, protagonist of historical change mm-hmm. like the sort of agent of historical change but you know how do we how do we uh work in a system and i'm not asking you this michelle because it's like i don't even know how to answer it but it's like it's but it is something that i think leftists have to ask themselves more it's like how do we push for a sort of a systemic change in a world in which we have this growing number of uh, surplus population where Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't work. Um, they can't, you know what I mean? Like they, they don't, um, but they also can't exit the system. They can't drop out of the system. So I don't know. You have this really, um, this is really bleak situation where people are like sort of stuck in the system, but they can't really use their leverage as workers to, um, mm-hmm. to bring the system to its knees. Um, so I don't know. It's just a really, it's something that I, I have grappled with a lot recently. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I feel like you just really put your finger on the thing that frustrates me about the universal basic income conversation. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, because that is not like what you just named is the thing that that pretends to be solving, even though it doesn't solve that problem at all. Right. Because people still lack power, even if you're giving them $12,000 a year. Yeah. That's why the tech people are into it. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you can actually, you know, give people... And I've I've even advocated it on the podcast before. I don't think you know strictly like that's all you need way, but yeah, it's like you can just give people uh, money or a paycheck every month and still keep them totally uh, oppressed and unable to challenge their circumstances. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think about that like in we're in Eastern Kentucky and in West Virginia is like um, 
And I'm also I'm also like fine with the universal basic income, but I just feel like it doesn't solve anything. Right. But like sure, but it doesn't solve anything. Right, right. Um, because it's like in in West Virginia, I think sixty percent of the land is owned by people other than people that live there. It's owned by like secret yeah. foreign companies, right. um, and by foreign I mean like you know foreign to the state of West Virginia. Um, and like half that land that people own anyway is totally polluted and ruined. And so it's like. What do you really? What power do you really have over the resources around you? Even if you have extra money to like assert your own way, um, if everything around you is owned by some other, some other thing, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's just like um, some, you know, some part of me thinks that like maybe you could sort of. Um, I mean, I've heard people like Corey Robin talk about, like, you know, maybe one way is, like, trying to organize people under this sort of, like, big, um, sort of, like, bigger tent of people who identify as socialists, mm-hmm. um, but they may not have any, um, uh, may not have any, uh, leverage when it comes to, like, their, um, ability to, uh, organize in the workplace and all this other stuff, um, and that maybe that pulls the system a certain direction, um, but I, I don't know. It's like to me, it's it's just a question of like who remain, who is the sort of uh, it's like I said earlier, the sort of agent of uh, historical change. You know, for the longest time, that was the working class for us. <laughs> so, anyways, I don't mean to take it down this road, but <laughs> that was interesting. The bleak road. <laughs> well, I I keep thinking about um this so like. There's all this future of work conversation. I have to go to like a lot of meetings and uh, people really think, or I also think like everything's going to get platformized. So we're all, so like, there's, it's going to be like Ubered everything. Right. Everything's going to be Ubered. Right. And so like, I keep wondering if there like ends up developing this weird, like consumer worker class consciousness mashup. Cause like if you're having, regardless of whether you're a consumer or a worker, you're having like the same experience of, interacting with an anonymized platform that's like stealing your data one way or the other right like does that start to form a constituency yeah that's a that's a great question um you hear yeah you hear that a lot too when people talk about like uh luxury space communism you know what i mean like freeing ourselves from labors and and letting the the robots do the work when in actuality, it feels like it's just you're not walking the problem back far enough. It seems like the problem itself is that mm-hmm. we've organized society around the need to have labor to begin with. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> big yeah. issues. Big, big issues big here on the Trillbillies. <laughs> I do have a secret um, or not so secret fantasy that we're going to figure out a way for everything, to, for robots to do everything so we can just live our best full lives and... <laughs> Be creative and raise children and swim and make things. That'd be nice. That would be nice. I like swimming. Yeah. yeah. Um. I well, I have a couple questions. I'm curious uh, if you have any hot takes about cop unions and uh, oh. organizing cops. Cops organizing yeah. for power. Uh. Yeah. I um. Uh. I feel really. Uh, I don't like cop unions. That's that's my, my main. That's the good and right answer, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get that right out there. 
Um, I'm also like so scared of them that I said that and I'm like, they're going to be at my door in five minutes. I know. It's um, terrifying. It really is. They're fucking like, they're vigilante. I mean, so the thing about them that I feel like we need to be like, say all the time is that most of them are not unions. They're fraternal orders. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And like, I, they're like, that just to me adds this extra layer of like total lack of accountability and that they are basically just like clubs for protecting um, the worst elements of society. Um, Sorry. I don't mean that. Maybe I don't know if I mean that, Um, (laughs) but I really like, I think that I, I mean, I'm not necessarily sure that I believe in police as they are currently structured in our country um, since they are generally like dispatched protect um forces government and capital forces that are oppressing people yeah fuck um, fuck cops go ahead i said fuck please <laughs> i was i was elevating the conversation very much so. <laughs> that to me is actually a very funny thing um it's really funny that like growing up like a lot of people I, I, that used to tell me like oh you know like fucked police you know like i don't know there used to be this very anti-cop sentiment i felt like back in the day <laughs> and most of those guys became cops when, so we, were, guys became cops. when we were young punks <laughs> yeah i don't know what happened though i mean it's like who the fuck likes cops like nobody likes cops that's the weird thing about the blue lives matter thing it's just who, like who's ever very, had a good interaction with a cop yeah a very small percentage <laughs> of people in this country yeah. likes cops <laughs> we sunday night we were coming home from a birthday party up north and we had to drive through a uh, checkpoint which a lot of people in cities don't even believe that this is a thing <laughs> that they set up roadblock literal roadblocks um and so yeah we had to go through a roadblock and i just for what like panicking. to see if you're high or if you're drunk i assume they were looking for someone actually this is kind of funny we um we rolled up to it and we were like so you know panicking there were six of us in a van and we were like all right is there any beer out put anything out look around we were like trying to you know shuffle to make sure nothing we just hadn't been thinking um and I said, they're probably just looking for somebody specific. And so sure enough, mm-hmm. they just looked at um, my friend's license and looked at the tag and said, you know, your tags are up at the end of the month. We can, you know, see you later. And we go through and I said, I wonder who they were looking for. And my friend said, probably my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like when that happens, a lot of times they're either like, it's, they're trying to drum up something at the end of the month or um oh yeah i gotta get those quotas there's, yeah. there's i've a, seen the wire there's, there's, there's a term specific. for it around here called fee grabbing <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah that's what the old timers yeah. call fee grabbing yeah 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 mm-hmm. i've heard of that yeah. too them fee grabbers yeah oh anyways yeah. I, I didn't mean to take us down a tangent there yeah. yeah i mean there's this good project that that was going on for a while where they were publishing the contracts uh, union contracts that cops had with various cities and they were like going through them which I thought was like a really good smart strategy to start demystifying like how those shitheads have so much power yeah <laughs> yeah, it's part and parcel of like why cops are able to do whatever they want yeah. essentially yeah yeah. It's, it's pretty cool what you said I hadn't thought about it this way but cop unions the fraternal orders of police actually by some miracle create even less accountability than they already <laughs> had before um it's pretty that's pretty amazing that it's even possible um yeah right well i mean like are. what's the larger consciousness they're working towards you know i don't know it's just like they're not pro- yeah sensibly cops exist to protect capital and to protect property but they're not like um 
producing anything. There is no product of their uh-huh. labor, so to speak, other misery. than misery, other than misery <laughs> and fear and shit. Yeah, I don't know. It's totally. Um, uh, it's another one of those things using the language and ideas of the left to create this sort of lesser fascist project. I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good hot take. Yeah, there are labor oh, yeah. people that want to defend cop unions. Like that, that's it's all like we don't like them, but like we need to have, and I we need to have them. And I just like I just can't get with that. Well, yeah, I mean, like with a union, I mean, okay, ostensibly to me, like the end goal of union organizing is being able to organize a large enough demographic, a large enough percentage of workers in this country to. Um, push for larger political goals and push for a larger political program um, and to be able to build something that has uh, economic power against the capitalist class. Like, where the fuck do cops fit into that? They don't. So I don't understand why it's controversial to be like, fuck cop unions. Like, it's just not... To me, it doesn't fit into that larger sort of um, political horizon. I just don't understand it. I mean... Right. Yeah. Strong agree. <laughs> Strong agree. Hard yes. Yeah. It's kind of, it is hard to understand. Head yeah. keep going out. I can't. I mean, it. but the, the the labor movement does this thing where like they cuz like a scarcity mentality or like this idea that we have to operate within the rules of like what the current system is. And so, you know, like that's there, there's like that's just like one of many things that that we I use the term loosely do that are like just about just continuing to prop up that system because um, we're too scared uh, to function without it ourselves. Uh, yeah, and we just we don't, I mean as you said we only have so much energy right now and yeah um and a large large fucking hill to climb for lack of a better way like we and you know it makes sense priorities are going to have to be put in line and it makes sense to prioritize people like domestic workers mm-hmm. um wasting energy yeah. organizing cops seems like a goddamn <laughs> rat race like, why would we yeah yeah who knows though um, yeah. uh any more um, hot, any more hot takes um round this out I can't. Can I don't have us? anything. I, my headphones Did are you try done the other for. One? But so that means I can't hear Michelle. But she she can hear me. It's kind of like a one way glass in an yeah. interrogation police room. <laughs> 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 so uh, you can't hear me, Michelle. Sound like you've been on or, the business end of that scenario before. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I can't hear you, but thanks for joining. <laughs> well, I'll let y'all. I'll let y'all close it out since I can't. Okay. Uh, yeah, anything you want to add, Michelle? We're so thankful to have you on. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I, you know, if uh, anybody wants to organize their workplace, they can call me. Um, no, I'm, like, really excited. I think, like, speaking of hot takes, I said this, like, a couple weeks ago. Um, like, I'm really excited for, like, these big, messy conversations that we're all having. Um, so I'm excited to have them uh, with you guys and um, with other people. We're hanging out and being around and uh, see you in the internet organizing. <laughs> yeah. See you on the internet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Michelle. Check Michelle right. out at co-wo- coworker.org. Or is that yes. right? 
coworker.org. Awesome. And then maybe I'll see you next month if you're coming down for Apple Shop board meeting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we can all get real drinks. <laughs> yeah. Talk some real <laughs> shit. Terrence and I'll have tonic water while you... Uh... Yeah, yeah, these two can't hang no more. God love them. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. Water, drink enough bourbon for them both. Maybe we'll see, uh, maybe we'll, maybe I'll see you next year at the Memorial Day softball tournament, Michelle, although I haven't been in recent years, but that's where Michelle and I met on opposite sides of a softball. Uh, we did. I know. You haven't gone. I know. Why it's haven't you been going? I, uh, I get lazy, you know, it's, um, I rarely get out of Whitesburg in general. <laughs> So, so, um, but maybe next year, maybe next year, maybe, maybe you West Virginians need to see what these Kentucky hands can do out on the, uh, out on the diamonds. Oh God. You gotta do it. You cannot tell me you're too lazy to go when it takes me like nine hours to get there from New York or something. I don't want to hear it. I don't have an excuse. You're right. (laughs) You're right. Cool. Thank you, Michelle. Have hey. a good rest of your week. I hope uh, all those memes you've been getting during the show are funny. <laughs> they bring you great joy. It's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> all right. As always. <laughs> Meme train. All right. Um, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much. Come gather around, children. It's high time you learned about a hero named Homer and a devil named Burns. We'll march till we drop the girls and the fellas. We'll fight till the death or else fold like umbrellas. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plant, but we have the power. So we'll march day by the big cooling tower. They have the plans, but we have the power. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower.